I am Neil Edwards, and this is The Leadership Range, where we elevate the voices of black and brown coaches, leaders, and allies, and have soulful conversations about all things at the intersections of leadership, relationships and teams, well-being, and inclusion. I offer deep insights and practical tips for work and everyday life. Today, you will hear Dr. Cherry and I muse about moral licensing, and also touch on leadership fragility and emotional tax. Dr. Cherry is from Atlanta, Georgia. She's an organizational psychologist and master coach. Not only is she brilliant, she leads from the heart with love as she works with her C-suite clients. Dr. Cherry shares the story of her leadership beginnings marching at five or six years old, getting transferred to a white school, and how having dyslexia was good for her. She has an uncommon approach to common problems around inclusion and working with differences that is deeply aligned with my own work as a team and relationship systems coach. This is a pretty special conversation. If nothing else is clear, we must get better at working and living with differences. And Dr. Cherry opens a door to make that a reality in this conversation. Hello, Dr. Cherry. How are you this evening? I am fabulous. How are you? I'm doing fabulous. I'm looking into this conversation. I'm so excited to be here with you and um, really reconnect. Uh, we've known each other and known about each other for a little while. And so to have you here with me tonight uh, for this conversation is exciting for me, um, especially because we already had a conversation about the range of topics we could talk about, and we have chosen one, but I suspect we'll cover a lot of ground anyway. And uh, our guests are in for a treat in this conversation. So welcome. And you are Dr. Cherry. Uh, that is what you go by. That is your brand. And I know there's a little bit of a story around that, um, but I wanna make sure people know your full name just once. So everybody listen closely, Dr. Cherry Collier. And she's here joining us tonight to grace us with her wisdom. Um, but uh, to clarify, she goes by Dr. Cherry. Okay, that, that is the brand. I have, Cherry and I met, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago, or something like that. And we've linked on LinkedIn. And I, you know, I spy on her a little bit. She is busy. She's always creating. Uh, extremely creative person and just prolific in the number of things that she does. She is an author. She is an organizational psychologist, PhD psychologist, a business owner, a master level coach with the International Coach Federation. She has taught uh, college, university level, helped create coaching programs. She's a consultant um, to, to leaders and business owners. Um, but I don't want to say too much. I want her to frame up for herself who she is, and then we'll get into this conversation. So Dr. Cherry, tell people a little bit about who you are, what you do, who you do it for, and with what? What are you bringing to the table? Well, I'll start by saying I'm a little girl from Southwest Atlanta, and I'm very proud to be um, from Georgia. And one of the things that is really important about being a native of Atlanta is all of the role models that I that I've had. And so one of them was a lady, her name was Dr. Jane Smith. And the reason why I am who I am, in addition to my mother and all of the other wonderful people is because of Dr. Jane Smith. And so um, what I do is I work in the C-suite, and I help leaders be their best selves. And I think that um, one of my first books was called Move Out of Your Own Way. And as leaders, I don't think that we know that we're blocking ourselves from, from greatness. And so that's really what I help them to do. I have those difficult conversations in a very, very um, powerful, promising way so that they can get it, they can hear it. And um, just um, am delighted to be here with you. And we spy on each other and we do great work together. So it is, um, it's just a great day. How long have you been doing this work, Dr. Sherry? 
Well, <laughs> um, so if you read my book, I'll say since I was five, because <laughs> I started reading Norman Vincent Peale um, before I could read. My mother and I would listen to his tapes. And so at five years old, I was like, I'm going to do this work. I'm going to help people. Um, but um, professionally, since 1998, uh, once I left the University of Georgia with my PhD, I started doing coaching and I worked for Accenture and Accenture was doing large scale change implementations. And I was saying, oh, great. What if we help the people with the change? And Accenture said, we do large scale change implementations. We are a technology company. Um, we'll pay you to think about um, the, the people um, because you are the change management, the human organization person, um, but, but we do technology. And so I really said, oh, I need to help the people because the systems can't change if you don't help the people. Yeah. So that sounds like about 22 years post-terminal degree. Yes. I just I like <laughs> people to understand that, you know, the little girl from Georgia might be little, but is fierce and has yeah. been doing this work for quite some time. You bring a lot of wisdom to the table. Um so thank you for, for your service in organizations because organizations need great leaders and great leaders need to get out of the way of themselves sometimes in order to get the best work out of the people who follow their leadership and create the products and services that we use and also to create experiences for people who are in those organizations. So um, what I like to do, uh, Dr. Cherry, is how you mentioned being a young girl and writing your first book or reading your first books. And, and you already mentioned a couple of people uh, who've influenced you, but what I like uh, for our listeners to get a hold of and get a sense of is who you are as a leader across the entire span of your life, wherever you want to be, begin. But I like, I, like my, I like my guests to start younger, right? Yeah. So absolutely. that you can really take us on a journey uh, and express is on this journey to, that expresses how your leadership range has expanded over time. The influencers, the people, the events, the experiences that you had that made you who you are today. And I, and I think this even through 2020, right? I think our leadership, if, if we're really paying attention in this world, our leadership is always expanding and 2020 has stretched all of us, Yeah. right? So if you can start somewhere in the past and take us on a journey. Tell us who you are, what your leadership is like, why it is the way it is, where it came from, who influenced it. Yes, and I love that because I, I clearly believe that 2020 is the year of clear vision. And so hindsight is everything when, when we look and think about it. So one of the, the most interesting things is recently I got a picture of myself um, that one of my um, play uncles, because everybody in Atlanta, we're, everybody's your uncle, everybody's your aunt, everybody's, we all related, although we're not. And this picture was this little girl marching with Senator Arthur Lankford, who was my godfather, and Hosea Williams. And she was a little bitty girl. And of course, that little girl was me. And when you think about what's happening, you know, currently, with you know George Floyd and all of those those things, my godfather um, Arthur Senator Arthur Langford used to come and pick me up every Saturday, and I would march for rights. I would sing all of those songs. I know all of the the hymns. You know, we shall overcome. Um, you know, um, just all of these you know wonderful things, and and that's where I where I started. And how that kind of moved through me being a little girl, when I say little, I was like five or six years old in the front of a line, um, you know, marching for, for rights. Um, I left there going to um, elementary school and um, because I had um, some people could call it some gifts. I say it was a punishment. I was moved from my elementary school um, that was all black to a, a, a white school, which made it basically majority to, to minority. 
And when I left my school, going to the new school, I said, oh, so the, the penalty for doing your work early, <laughs> the punishment is losing all of your friends. Um, and so I got to go to school in, in Buckhead. And um, going to school in, in Buckhead was a very different experience. And that helped me to understand that there are people throughout your life who don't always fit in. And so, you know, people wanted to touch my hair. They wanted to know how different I was. And um, that piece of marching for the rights of all people allowed me to approach that situation very differently. I wasn't thinking, oh my goodness, are these people crazy? I was, I thought, touch it. <laughs> you know, it's very much like yours. Um, his, his hair. Um, and and my experience might be different, but um, throughout school, I was that kid who would go to the tables where no one was sitting. I would speak to the people that other people wouldn't talk to. And I would do all that I could to just, you know, pull out of people um, what other people looked looked over. Um, I've never been a person who wanted to follow the crowd. I've always wanted to just, you know, do my own thing and make sure that everyone knew that it was, um, it was okay to do that. Um, so in high school, um, elementary school, all that, I realized that I was dyslexic. I knew that in elementary school, but um, being dyslexic um, was good for me because the, it, it sealed the deal and yet another experience of fighting for people who are different. And so my entire life has been about allowing people to be their best selves. You don't have to be like me. Um, you don't have to look like me. You just need to be you. And that's what I like people um, to be able to do. So every day in corporate America, I'm fighting for leaders to find their voice and to know that that voice is, uh, it needs to be authentic and it needs to be yours. And it is okay if no one else is saying what you're saying, let's figure out a way for people to be able to hear it. And so that little girl who was marching in the streets is now marking and marching in the C-suites. Mm, I love that. From marching in the streets to marching in the C-suites. And so when people think about, as I, as I was listening to you and, you know, the, this conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, you know, justice for all people. This conversation is really big right now. What I really, what I appreciate about what you're saying, and, and it sounds like you learned this at a very early age, that you had these differences, not just race. You had dyslexia, you had to deal with the resilience of experiencing loss by going from one school that was all black to school that's all white, you know, so there's sameness, there's difference. Um, noticing people who are alone in school, you know, sitting alone at tables. And um, I, I love how that speed from marching on the front lines um, for something continued mm -hmm. to grow in you as you had these experiences that demonstrated that somebody was being marginalized or set aside for yeah. one reason or another. Um, and also, and I have not heard this before, and I, I, I have a little bit of a chuckle and a grin in me because the hair thing, they wanted to touch my hair yes. and you were different. You said, all right, touch it. It's yeah. hair. We have some and you have some. It's still yeah. hair. Touch it, touch it, touch it. <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's this thing about, well, okay, if that's where you are, let's go there. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go there. Not, not so much of a stop, put up a wall, stop that. Let's go there and explore. So that's a really beautiful perspective, I think, that um, I just wanted to call that out because not everybody does it that way. And I think that that's the, the challenge, though, because when we don't do it that way, um, that kind of ties into something that's really important. That's that emotional tax that we pay, um, because it's not fair to expect everyone to want to allow people um, to touch their hair all the time, because I, I get um, 
um, senior executives who change their hair all the time. And so when they're in the office, people walk past them and they don't know who they are and they get really offended. And I have to say, well, I didn't know who you were either. Um, so, you know, if you have braids one day and, you know, something else one day and it's a different color, I, there is a difference in that look um, and recognizing that not everything that that people are doing or asking is coming from a place of hate. Some of it is really coming from a place of curiosity. And so what I like is helping them to, to understand, be curious with me. You might not be able to ask everybody else, but ask me and I will find the answer um, for you for sure. Yeah. Even if nobody is expressing themselves with their hair the way that you do, yes. you're doing it your way. And yes. so let's, let's go there. I love mm -hmm. that. So it's, it's, such, it's such a nice consistency between how you live and how you do the work that you do professionally so that that that's a that's a beautiful authenticity in there and you mentioned emotional tax that might come up a little bit later in the conversation that's mm -hmm. that piqued my interest um so what what we're here to talk about today and we'll see where this goes is something you call moral license yes and humans, you know, we, we're, we're meaning making machines. So people can make up all sorts of things about what that means and that's fine. But you have, you have specific meaning around what you're talking about when you say moral license. So what does that mean? Tell us what that is and, and, and let's take it from there. What is moral license? What are you talking about? Yeah, so um, moral licensing is really a concept that was highlighted in one of Malcolm Gladwell's books. And so he isn't the author, but it is such a fascinating um, theory. And basically what it says is if I do something for one person, um, particularly a, a margin, a person in a marginalized group, then I feel like I've done all that I need to do. And so I'll give you an example. Um, you know, if people voted for President Obama, they feel like, oh, I should get a pass on everything else. I don't have to vote for, you know, Neil to be my, on my advisory board because I've already supported you guys. You know, it's, it's kind of that thing I gave at the office, you know, it's like, I'm done. I've done, I've done my work. And when we start to think about glass ceilings and all of these ceilings, it's very important because there are some invisible barriers that people are um, noticing um, that will come out of, you know, um, my sorority sister Kamala Harris with her being um, a VP, a female VP. There are going to be a lot of people I gave at the office, <laughs> right? Um, so they're not going to be opportunities for other people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it sounds like, well, there's a lot of things that immediately come up for me. If people are, I guess, taking this position of having moral license, mm -hmm. uh, it sounds to me like this moral license uh, gives them an out or gives them some sort of a finality on the thing that they have done. What, what impact does it have when our leaders, um, and, and by leaders, I mean, just about everybody that's in the world, but we'll, we'll, we'll focus it in organizations, right? People in organizations, all are leaders and some are executives, executive leaders. What happens when people choose to take on this moral license? What's the consequence? Well, the consequence is I'm done. I've done all that I need to do. And so I believe that I'm a good person. And the reality is, is, is when we think about what you do, when you're talking about the leadership range, it isn't I'm a good person because I gave once. It is a good person. It is I'm a good person because I give over and over again. And so, you know, to quote one of my favorite songs and, and passages is let the work that I've done speak for me. It doesn't say let the task that I've done. It says let the work, which in which means the body of work. And so what the implication is, is if people feel like they've done one great thing and they won't open it up to other opportunities, then there are going to be people that are going to be, you know, penalized, um, you know, for this. And that 
those penalties are very painful um, for individuals because you will have a lot of qualified people who will not be able to make it to the next level because people have given at the office. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, and I know I, I, I focus this in on, on inside of an organization, but as, as you were speaking there, I, I thought, well, you know, if you, if you had an opportunity to, not you, Dr. Cherry, but a person had an opportunity to do good. And it, let's say that the, to do good is the opposite of to do what we might call bad, like stealing something, right? <laughs> so if you don't steal once, that doesn't mean that later on you should just steal because you've already done the job of not stealing. <laughs> you have to keep, you have to continue. You need to, you need to continue not stealing stuff for the, for the rest of your life. <laughs> we should not. And so what's interesting is when we have that opportunity to steal and we don't steal, the research is saying that by us not stealing, we give ourselves more opportunities to do something else. And so it doesn't just show up, you know, as, as it relates to race, it really does, you know, show up in, in different things. You know, it, it could be just just anything, you know, something really, really, you know, simple. And this, this whole concept and belief, I deserve it. You know, I, I've done this, so I deserve. And so we use that deserving piece, um, which is, you know, one of those words that I'm like, you deserve it. Um, yes, I do. I, I did all of this. Um, so this right here is definitely for me. Um, and, and it absolutely creates, you know, some, some challenges for us. Yeah. You know, tagging on to, to the usage of that word deserve in this context, it's, um, and I, I don't often, but, but I'm going to, but today, yes, you, you did deserve, but are you, are you continuing to be deserving? Yes. Yes. And see, you know, the thing that has fascinated me most about psychology, which is my love, I, 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 if I'm going to tell you the truth, I love my family, I love everybody, but my first love is psychology and psychological theories because it explains so much. And if we hop into like a self-serving bias, it's my whole idea and the way that we process our information is very much self-serving and helping people and leaders understand the self-servingness of, of, their, of the, the nature of why they're doing what they do is kind of one of, one of the gifts that I get out of, you know, working with people in, in the C-suite. But we walk around a lot really thinking, I deserve, okay, well, what about that homeless person? Did he or she deserve? Yes, that person does deserve many things and many amazing things. But the real question happens for us because we start to say there is something that they didn't do. So there is some internal characteristic about that person that makes them not as worthy as me. And the truth is, is we don't know that person's situation, um, but we think about our things and what we've done because we most of us have really worked hard to get where we are and so our work is is so much more justified and and i think that when we start to to really play that on it it is i think it's it it's it's a dangerous playground to play on mm -hmm. it's almost it's almost like we're uh, you said justify you know you know i'm just i'm justified now i can i don't know if relax is the is the proper characterization but like you said you 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 have this moral license now to discontinue doing what is perhaps good right and good i, I love i love something you said and i want you to i want you to react to this because you, you you said something like um when you don't steal when you have that opportunity to steal and you don't do it it gives you the opportunity to do something else, to do more. And I, what came up for me when you said that is if, 
someone does something for a black person, a minority, some marginalized person, and now they have this moral license um, and they don't continue to be inclusive at the opportunities where they can be inclusive. They are, they are giving up the opportunity to build that muscle of inclusive leadership. What would you say to that? And so this is what I like. I, I love, um, you know, Robin's book on, um, Dr. Robin's book on white fragility. And I think leadership fragility, fragility is very important because we've got to be vulnerable, right? We've got to be willing to call ourselves out. Um, if you're noticing that everybody at the table is looking like you, um, yes, you brought one person in two doors down. Okay, that's one. <laughs> so yeah, hand clap, high five. Woo woo, you did that. Um, and it doesn't stop just because you took a shower. I hope you're taking multiple showers. You know, I hope you're brushing your teeth every day, sometimes two days and you're flossing. Um, so, but it doesn't, it's not the same when we're helping, you know, people who definitely deserve that opportunity. We say to ourselves, I've done it. But if you um, took a shower and you went and worked out, more than likely, you're going to take another shower. Same concept. If you help one person and you see someone else who's qualified, who is in a marginalized group as well, you can also help yourselves. And this gets into, so my dissertation um, in the 90s was on unconscious bias. So that's where I, I started. I started in unconscious bias in, in 1991. Um, and many of the our thought patterns are literally underneath. And so we don't know it. So somebody's got to bring it to our attention. I'm not sure if you recognize that you just did X and because you did X, you're less likely to do Y. Who me? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to always do X. I'm going to always do X. And then we've got to be willing to show them, okay, so let me say this. You just did X. And then you did Y, and then you did Y again. And then they say, are you sure? Yeah. So let me make it more clear. You just did X, Y, Y, Y. So there's no more X. And then you have to help the person to understand that X still needs your help. You know, you can't just do one thing. You can't throw a pebble at someone and, you know, expect them to get out of the ocean. They need a life vest. They might need the, the Coast Guard. Oh, but I threw them a pebble. What does a pebble have to do with them getting out of the ocean? Yeah. You know, you threw this thing out there. You threw out leadership fragility. And I'm, I'm curious about that. And this is in the context of, hey, I, I did X. Didn't I already do X? I'm good. All right. Is that so I and you threw this out there in the context of uh, white fragility um, concept that I don't know if Dr. Robin D'Angelo invented it or created it, but she wrote about it and, and her book is, is called White Fragility. So is this leadership fragility um, sort of the, at least in part, the defensiveness that a leader might have when they've done something at once, they feel like they now uh, are justified. And then you point out, uh, actually, you need more X. You're jumping to Y, X needs to show up. And there's a little bit of a defensiveness as a leader. Am I in the right neighborhood on that? Or can you clarify that for us? Yeah, so what we want with the leadership fragility is we want the leader to be okay with being vulnerable, recognizing that there is a possibility that maybe perhaps they don't know that they, they didn't do it intentionally. So we're gonna give them credit for it, but they need to be vulnerable. They need to, to know that there's a chance that they could have done something differently. And they have to kind of stop and look in the mirror and, you know, look around and, you know, what I kind of say in my book, stop, look and listen. Um, and that comes from fragility. 
you have to be willing to be vulnerable. And so if my ego is so big that I'm saying, no, 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 that is not true. That is not what I've done. Um, then nothing changes. And so that's why leaders fundamentally need coaches. They need coaches because it they don't need to be you don't want leaders to be fragile everywhere. You know, you don't want every leader to stand up and just break out and start crying. Um, but what you do really want is leaders behind the curtain to cry, to be fragile, to learn, to discover, to recover so that they can be their best selves. And so when we're getting to that leadership fragility part is helping them to be vulnerable, to recognize where there is a chance for growth, where there's a possibility. We're not saying you are a bad person. What we're saying is, is that you did some great stuff. And now that, that cloak or that coat of moral licensing is what you're wearing. And there is some more good work for you to do. And that's the point with the fragility. You've got to be willing to, to think about it and to, to really be fragile enough to rebuild and that's and remold yourself. You know what I love about this, Dr. Cherry, is that leaders are trying to be great leaders. You know, if we, if we just assume everybody's trying their best um, and we know that their best can be better, this 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 notion of leadership fragility feels to me um, fateful in a world where leaders, for instance, around topics of race and gender and those sorts of things in the workplace are very sensitive. And nobody, like nobody wants to be called a racist. But people might people might take pause and say, hey, this is about your leadership. And there's this notion called leadership fragility. That's e that, that even feels a little bit better to me right now as I sit here and I, I, I put myself in the shoes of anybody that's uh, privileged or has been marginalized or you know, anybody that does this type of work. Um, it feels a little bit more accessible than white fragility. Yes. Yeah. And see, the thing about leadership fragility is like this safe space. We're creating a safe, brave space for people to come in and do an assessment. And it's not just, you know, Myers-Briggs or a DISC or, you know, we do those, but, but let's, let's really assess. Are you walking the talk, talking the walk? I mean, what is it that's really going on? Um, and why, and particularly around 360. So, you know, my brain just went someone else when I said that, because when I think about leaders in 360s, I have had more people want to debate me about the 360. And, and I'm saying, I'm your coach. <laughs> I did I did complete the 360. Other people did. And so what if we look at it from a leadership fragility place? And that is, how can you be vulnerable? How can you be open? And how can you look at this and say, how can I make sure that nobody else ever says this about me again? Mm -hmm. Right? No matter what it is. Um, no matter what topic. it is. No yeah. matter what it is. And that's, that's in that safe space of, of coaching, it gives us that permission to really look and start to be fragile and understand that we are better leaders when we listen, when we, when we stop, and when we really look around. Because we can keep going. We can keep going and keep believing that we have a moral license. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think that it, it helps us be the great leaders that we were really brought on this earth to be. I could have stopped marching in the first grade. <laughs> I'm done with this. My legs are tired. <laughs> I'm My over uncle. it. Yeah. I, I'm curious about um, how leaders you work with respond to the notion of moral license. 
when you have to like, when you have to name it and say, this is what I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the greatest things about my clients is um, we have a relationship. So we have rapport. And I will never come to a leader before they are ready. Remember Paul Masson? I will sell no wine before it's time. Um, when I was young and I did coaching in 1998, they probably called me a kick butt coach. I might have just told you stuff. But now it's really coaching for me is very strategic. And it's very much about, um, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear and making sure that I create that safe space so that I can deliver the information so that when they hear it, they can almost complete the sentence. And, and that's, that's what happens. So when I start talking about, you know, here's what I'm seeing, here's what I'm noticing. What do you think? They can chime in. They can start to say, you know what, as much as I want to tell you, you're wrong. Um, as much as I want to tell you, that's not true. Um, there might be some truth to it. And I think that that is, you know, what the gift of coaching gives you. It's not what, sometimes it's just how and it's when. How and when. Yeah. That is, that is so beautiful. And so my, my heart at this moment goes to managers and associates and, and you know, not high level leaders who are in organizations and they're a person of color, they're black, they're Hispanic, you know, whatever. And they're noticing some things um, about the people around them or the people who lead them. And they notice maybe perhaps instinctively or intuitively that they're noticing a bit of this moral license showing up. Um, they're, they're noticing a bit of leadership fragility um, showing up in those that they look to for leadership. And they want to have a conversation. They want to have a productive conversation. Um, what would you say they need to do? And I'm, and the reason I, the reason I'm going here is because they may or may not have the, the structure and the beauty that exists inside a coaching relationship. They may not have had the time, the time to design that relationship and to build that trust to do what you and I can do when we work with leaders to bring up these sensitive topics. But they're out there every day going to work and they're working alongside or working in service of folks who maybe think they have moral license or you see some behaviors that look like leadership fragility. How, what would you say to them? What do they need to do? So I want to start off by saying, first of all, they're already paying a high emotional tax for being there, right? And they're seeing <laughs> it happen over and over again. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's like, in addition to Uncle Sam playing, you know, get cutting out of my check, um, I'm paying a very high emotional tax. And so um, one of the things that I say, and, and I never say things for agreement, um, and, and that's important that I say it. I, I prefer actually disagreement more than a, agreement because I don't even agree with myself. Um, so I might have a theory today and I'll read another theory that contradicts it because I think that the greatest thing we can do is, is learn. Um, but what I'm thinking today is if you think about a bank account, if I asked you right now, you know, to give me a check, to write me a check personally for a million dollars, you may or may not be able to do it. But if I give you enough time to, to make some deposits, I'm sure that you'll be able to do it. And I think that, and that's called idiosyncratic points in psychology. We have to make deposits in people. And so when we're looking at people thinking about their moral license, it's important that we also, one, look in, at, at ourselves and recognize that there's some things we've done and um, whatever. Um, and the, the second thing we want to do is to come from a place of love. 
and I talk about, you know, the corporate love. Um, and with love, we want to deposit into first. So we got to, you can't just go to the bank and start withdrawing money first if you don't have an account. So you can't just walk up to a leader or manager um, and say, hey, <laughs> here's where you're making all of these mistakes. Because what happens with the leadership fragility in that point, their amygdala will become hijacked. And then you'll really see some things you did not want to see because you and you're wondering, well, I was just trying to help. Yes, you might have been trying to help, but people like people who are one like themselves and who also understand them. So that means we have to make deposits and you make deposits by saying, hey, Neil, I really, really like the way that you show up. I, I really notice those things. And so it's like that feedback sandwich. We've got to give people positive information first, build that relationship, and then um, withdraw, write a check. And, and so, you know, people might say, I don't have that type of time. I'm already paying a high tax. And you are. Um, but that's, if you don't take the time, it's not going to work out for you. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I love mean, that you said that because I was just going <laughs> to ask. I'm just like, okay. They're paying an emotional tax every day. So what I'm yeah. hearing is that, that even though they're paying that tax yeah. every day, they're going to have to make some deposits over time. Yeah. And live with that emotional tax. So but that, but see, paying making those deposits is actually what changes that emotional tax, right? So it lowers your tax. So it's it's I'm seeing a situation, the situation is out of control. How do we change it? Well, you change yourself. And how do I change myself? I build a relationship with this person. And so once you build a relationship with a person, we know direct experience is what changes everything in the world. So it's, it's in-group, out-group, always them and us. But once I have a relationship, oh, it's us and us, <laughs> right? And that makes a, that changes the, the entire situation. And so believe it or not, the tax that you're paying starts to go down. And now you can have an ally um, with someone who was, you know, doing something that might've been very harmful to you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I love that. And it, it, it's similar to gratitude. You know, um, if you spread it, it, it comes back in spades and dividends. Right. Um, so it's sort of, you know, loving that person over there in spite of, in spite of what you might be perceiving and it will come back to you in love over time more and more i i, I love that you mentioned um you mentioned allyship and i don't remember when it was now but i did a, a episode i don't know two or three episodes ago around allyship and it would, my key point there was you must be in relationship if you, you can't just declare this and do that um these good deeds you actually need to be in relationship with somebody for allyship to be real for allyship to become sticky for for you for for me to care enough i have to be in relationship with you and uh coming from a place of love uh, making those deposits um reduces the emotional tax that we pay but it also brings people closer, um, uh, 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 moving them away from that uh, moral license that they hold and coming into relationship and, and, and perhaps doing some, some productive relational work uh, going forward. Yeah. And so one thing I wanted to, to pick up on, and, and this is one of my favorite things to think about, if you don't have a ship, you just have relation, you just have ally. You know, but what we really need is a ship to help us come over. You know, it's like we want to have a bridge. We're, we're trying to figure out how to get them over. And so you get allyship when you build a way to connect. And so we need to help people. And that's what we as coaches are trying to do. We're trying to help people recognize that the ship is just as important as whatever it is you're trying to do. If there is no ship, there is no, you only have relation, you know, and, and that's, that's what you really want. We want allyship. We want a relationship. We want everything that's going to 
bring about the connection. And so sometimes we just don't have enough in the connection part. And, and that's, that, that's, that's the hard work. And that's where we also have to work with our leaders to be more fragile, meaning to be more receptive, to understand that you may have more skills than, you know, some of the people that you're coming in contact with. So when they come to you, let's see how vulnerable you can be rather than letting your ego be fragile. That's not what we want. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's brilliant. That, uh, that shift. Now I have an image in my head that dash, that connection, that bridge between you and me, you and I, we need that ship. It's like co-act. I do co-active work and there's a dash between the co and the active. And when, when we really study co-active, cause it's, it's sort of a buzzword. Now the dash has meaning and life in it. They go together. They're not separate. You can't just be co. And you can't just be active. The dash is the bridge between the two. So I can, I love that the ship is between that, that brings the allyship alive and, and takes us both on a journey. Yeah. So I did coactive coaching as well. And I think that, um, you know, for, for sure, some of the experiences that I have with, with coactive can definitely be credited with my not being always in my head and moving through my heart. And so that's a part of the ship. Like you, you need a ship to help you to pass from your head to your heart. And that's where we need to be. We need to help leaders understand, you know, we have a head for a powerful reason. We have a heart. And then how do we use our hands in a, in a way just to connect it all? Yeah. Head, heart, and hands, our body. It's, in, it's embodied. I, I love that. Oh, man. I hope you all are hearing this head and heart. A lot of leaders get stuck in their head. Even some coaches just coach at the head. <laughs> we need the head and the heart. Um, so, so Dr. Cherry, I, we could go on forever. I actually don't know how long we've been talking now, but, um, to wrap it up, I want to, I mean, there were so many beautiful nuggets in here and I took some notes for myself, but um, what are one or two tips that you might give people, traps or practices um, that you might share for leaders, executives or, or you know, non-senior folks in organizations to look out for and avoid falling into this trap of grabbing that moral license. Yes. I want to go to the head, the heart and the hands because most leaders and really most people, we're always thinking from the head. Like the head is the most logical thing. It's like, you know, and then the, the hands are all about what we're going to do. We're no longer human beings. We're always human doings. But what we forget is the heart, and that is the connection. And if you think about the heart and remembering how to let the God in you see the God in the other person, you know, let, you know, the whole namaste, um, all of that, just really starting to think about connection. I really think that it changes who you're working with. Um, and so moral licensing is something that is many times at the unconscious level. So it's not that you're going to necessarily be able to be the person who's going to fix it, right? But when you use your heart and you come from a place of heart, you will be able to help that person to identify it. You know, anytime we bring the heart into the equation, we think about the heart to heart resuscitation, it enables us to create change. And so, yes, the theories are important. Yes, your hands are important. But recognizing that heart piece is what we really need um, if we're going to change um, the whole idea, the concept of how moral licensing is operating in organizations. And the second part of that is the leaders have got to be willing to be fragile. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's where we ought to end. 
you know, that's, that's so beautiful. Head, heart, and hands. That's the tip. That's also don't get in the trap of not bringing heart into the conversation and into the work. And I want to, I want to say this. I know we need to end. That was, so I wrote a book called Move Out of Your Own Way. My entire book is about the ship that I had to build going from my head to my heart because I was a know-it-all. I knew everything. I knew all of these theories. I didn't know I was cold and aloof. I couldn't connect two people. Um, and it was because I was always theory do, theory do, theory do. Um, and if you're theory do and not theory love do, um, you know, do love theory, you're gonna be missing something. And so we gotta move and make sure that we're incorporating strategies that allow our whole brain and hearts to really, really work. Okay. Move out of your own way. Yes. Authored yes. by Dr. Cherry. Look yes. it up, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you for spending time with me today. I hope you will come back in the future and do another Absolutely. episode. This was a beautiful conversation and I really hope and I think our audience will love it. Thank you. Yes, thank you. That was Dr. Cherry. You can connect with her on LinkedIn at linkedin.com backslash in backslash Dr. Cherry C. That is D-R-C-H-E-R-R-Y-C. Leaders need to be vigilant to avoid adopting moral licensing, especially leaders who claim to be inclusive. One task or good deed does not make one an inclusive leader, and it does not justify future exclusive behaviors. Persistence and a consistent body of work over time, a lifetime, demonstrates inclusion. Repeated inclusive behaviors opens the opportunity for leadership growth. And, as Dr. Cherry brilliantly put it, handing in your moral license requires more than your head and your hands. It requires bridging the two with heart, head, heart, and hands. Enlisting the heart requires leadership fragility. It requires leaders to be vulnerable in trusted relationships to support growth and range. If you didn't hear it, Dr. Cherry says that is why leaders and executives need coaches, where they can develop trusted and professional relationships to do this work. And if you're not a senior leader, but need to have sensitive conversations with those in leading roles, spending time making deposits in the relationship before having the conversations is crucial if you want things to go well. Beginning next week, I will be running an experiment to deliver content faster and in consumable chunks. I'd love to hear back from you with your feedback on it. Thank you again for listening. You can find me on LinkedIn at nedwards07 or on Instagram at neil underscore edwards underscore coaching. I look forward to you coming back for more.